you're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. We hope that you'll be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Mission Church is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy the message from our Sunday gathering. Hey, what's up, Mission Church? My name is Travis, and I serve as the pastor of preaching and theology here at Mission. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to check out the screen below. You can follow along there. Now, this morning, we're going to continue our teaching series through the book of Acts that we've called Empowered for Jesus' Mission. And like I share with you each and every week, that if you are trusting in Jesus and you're a follower of Him, trusting in Him and Him and alone to make you right with God, you need to understand that Jesus is not done with you. He's not done with me. That at this very moment, Jesus is up at the right hand of the Father, empowering His church here on earth. And today what we're going to see is that Jesus is empowering us to declare and to demonstrate his gospel through word and deed in the city and in the places around us. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 7. And as you're turning there, pray along with me and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your love and your grace that you give us through your son, Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I pray, Father, that as your word goes forth, that you will speak to each and every person that is watching. But I also pray, Father, that you drive these truths even deeper into my heart as I preach them. God, I love you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the empty tomb and the fact that he is alive, ruling and reigning at this very moment, empowering his church here on earth. And so, God, use us for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of the city in which we live in. We pray also in your name. Amen. Many years ago, I was living in Salt Lake City, Utah, and during the summer months, we would oftentimes have high school students come up from Las Vegas and help us with serving projects in the city. We ended up calling one of the city officials, and that city official shared with us that there was a certain part of our city that could use some renewal work, some landscaping. And so we called those students up, and we went into that part of the city, and those students, along with our church, served and basically some renovated some islands in the middle of the road, pulling out weeds and putting in mulch. Now that city official came down and wanted to witness what was going on. She called me over, and she shared with me that they had several groups in the past come and serve the city. Yet they had never had a group of students quite like this who served with so much excellence as well as joy. And when she asked me what is up with these students, I was able to share with her that they were from a church group and I began to talk to her about Jesus. Now as I was in that conversation, I noticed that a police officer stopped. One of my friends had a truck parked illegally with some of the equipment we were using. And so I walked away from that person. I walked over to that officer and I explained to the officer, we're going to move the car because, I mean, I didn't really want my buddy to get a ticket. Yet that officer told me there was no reason for me to move that car. With that, she looked at me and she said, I cannot take my glasses off because I'm crying. I patrol this area of the city each and every day. And I've never seen a group of people come down and do what you're doing. I've never seen a group of young people like this come down and serve the city with so much joy. Can you tell me what is going on? And with that, I had the opportunity to what? To share with that officer that this was a church group who had come up from Las Vegas to serve the city. And they had joy because of Jesus in their life. And I began to explain to her who Jesus is. 
In our text today, we're going to see that Jesus is empowering us to share and show his gospel to those around us. However, so many Christians have the mistaken idea that if the gospel is to be shared, it's going to be done only through paid professionals, through pastors and elders. Yet from this point forward in the book of Acts, what we are going to see is that the gospel is spread throughout the known world, not primarily through the paid professionals, but through average everyday Christians who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, sharing and showing Jesus to those around them. So if you got your Bible, look with me in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Here's what we read. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see, heaven, the, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you've not journeyed with us through the book of Acts up to this point, you might be a little bit lost. Many of us know the feeling of walking into a movie after it started or maybe picking up a book right in the middle of it. And when that happens, what are you? You're confused. Several years ago, my wife and I went to the movie theater to watch a movie that was starring Johnny Depp. We knew we were going to be late, and we walked in. We missed the opening credits and some of the character development. We thought, oh, we'll figure it out. Yet by the time we got to the end of the movie, we had no idea what was really going on. It wasn't until we rented it later and watched it at home that we figured out what it was like. You know, like what was the point of the story? And jumping into the middle of a book like this can feel a lot like this. Last week, we saw that Philip preached his first and only sermon. He basically preached his funeral. Yet what was his message all about? It was all about Jesus. You see, Stephen was trying to share with the religious leaders that their story was all about a different story or another story. And whose story is that? Jesus. I mean, you got to understand that Jesus' story was the focal point of all of their history. That is why Stephen told these religious leaders, you're not to ultimately trust in Moses. You're not to ultimately trust in Joseph or the temple or the law, but rather you are to trust in the one whom all those things point to. He went on to tell them that Abraham, their forefather, the founding father of the nation of Israel, God came to him and said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the peoples of the earth through your lineage. And who is the one through whom God is going to bless all the peoples of the earth? Jesus. That is why Stephen told them, Jesus is the greater Joseph. Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater prophet to come. And their history is all about who? Jesus. And what is the religious leader, leader's reaction to this? They become angry. They become upset. The text tells us they gnash their teeth. Why is that? Well, you might remember that Stephen ended his sermon by saying that the religious leaders are what? They're stiff-necked and they always follow in the actions of their ancestors or their fathers, that they were the ones who killed Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question, especially to those of you who are married. If you're in an argument with somebody, especially your spouse, and you go up to them and they say, you're acting just like your mother, or you're acting just like your father, does that usually make things better or worse? It makes things worse, right? If you think that makes things better, you need to give me a call. We need to have a conversation. Stephen looks at them and he says, you're acting just like your fathers, always persecuting the prophets that God sent. And what Stephen said, friends, is absolutely true. But that is not the only thing that made them mad. Stephen says that he looks up and he sees a heaven opening up. And who is standing there? Jesus. Now that should grab your attention and my attention. 
The reason for that is as we read the scriptures, we see that once Jesus completed his earthly ministry, living a perfect life on our behalf, dying the death on our behalf, and rising again and ascending to the right hand of the Father, that after he accomplished all of that, what did Jesus do? He sat down. Yet Stephen says he sees Jesus standing. Why is that? Well, many scholars believe that what Jesus is doing is he is standing as an advocate for Stephen, receiving him and welcoming him into heaven. Many of us have been to a graduation. And when you go to a graduation, as the graduates come in, what do you see? All the people of honor and status who are on the stage stand up. This happened to me when I graduated from seminary. I'll never forget walking into my graduation and seeing men and women on the stage who had PhDs and doctorates. I mean, just, just really accomplished people standing up as if, like standing up as our advocates of, as we walked in, basically saying, I will vouch for those people. And what Jesus is doing in a similar way is he is standing up. Here is Stephen being condemned by an earthly court. Yet he sees the heavenly court open up and there is Jesus standing as his advocate to receive him and to welcome him. While that earthly court condemns him, Jesus stands up and commends him, almost as if to say, Father, this one trusts in me. And mission, you've got to hear me on this. Please look at me. It is likely you and I will not die for our faith like Stephen did. However, what you need to understand is that when you live for Christ, it is going to get tough. But you need to understand that Jesus is your advocate too. To the degree in which you and I are aware of Jesus as our advocate is to the, is to the degree in which you and I will stand with confidence and power and love in the midst of persecution. You see, Mission, as we go through the book of Acts, especially from this point forward, I have told you, the persecution in this book is not going to be dialed down, but it's going to be dialed up. And as followers of Jesus Christ, persecution in our life is not a matter of if, but when. And when that persecution comes, friends, you are not alone. For who do we have as our advocate standing for us, inter interceding for us before our Father? Who is that? It's nobody else other than Jesus Christ himself. And that should give us a hope and a confidence and a power to withstand no anything that comes towards us. You see, the religious leaders are gnashing their teeth. They're extremely angry. And a mob forms and they take Stephen and they drag him outside the city. And listen what happens to him. Verse 57. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's really important. We'll talk about him in the coming weeks. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. So they take Stephen outside the city and they begin to stone him. And you have to realize that this is an extremely painful way to die. It's basically men picking up rocks and throwing them at your head over and over until the point in which you die. And that is what they do to Stephen. But Luke tells us that some of the men even took off their outer garments to what? To get a better wind up. 
They were so angry. They did not want anything to restrict them from getting the fastest, you know, the fastest throw or the hardest throw possible at Stephen. A couple of months ago, we went out uh, hiking across the street in the desert. And while we were out there, my son looked at me and said, I bet I can throw a rock farther than you. So with that, I took a rock and I threw it. Well, then my son took a rock and he threw his and his rock went farther than mine. Now, the reason mine went short is because I had a coat on. It was restricting my movement. So I took that coat off and I say I threw my rock and absolutely destroyed him. He'll tell you that my rock hit and rolled past his. I'll let you decide who won that rock throwing contest. What I want you to see is the point. They take off their garments to what? to not restrict their movement so they can get that, that rock as fast and as hard as Stephen as possible. And who do these guys lay their garments down next to or at the feet of? This guy by the name of Saul. You see, Saul is serving as the coat check. And I would argue Saul is the one who is behind all of this, all of this that has taken place. But notice Stephen's final words. You can tell a lot about a person by the words they say, their final words, because usually those words are most important. Many of us have seen the movie E.T., and what were E.T.'s final words? I'll be right here. If you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, what were Tom Hanks' last words to Matt Damon, who was playing a character by the name of James? He said, James, earn this, earn it. William Wallace says he was passing away. His final words were freedom. And if you've seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, what were Abraham Lincoln's last words at their history report? Be excellent to one another and what? Party on dudes. Here is Stephen. He's got his final words. He knows he is going to die. And what does he do? He almost word for word says exactly what Jesus did while Jesus was on the cross. Stephen, entrust his spirit to Jesus And as the rocks are hitting his body, as people are taking off their garments so they can throw as hard as they possibly can, he asks God to forgive them the way Jesus asked the Father to forgive those who nailed him to the cross. And guess who would be the answer to this prayer? That very man I just told you about who we will talk about more in the coming weeks by the name of Saul, who many of us know as Paul. You see, Saul will become a believer in Jesus, receive that forgiveness, and just like Stephen, what will he do? He will go and he will tell other people about Jesus. But let me ask you a question, Mission. Into whose hands are you entrusting your spirit? More than likely, you are not going to die by persecution. But I will say this, none of us are promised the end of the day. Last time I checked, the death rate is still floating around 100%. And who are you entrusting your spirit to? So many of us, we tend to entrust our spirit to our good works, to our moral performance, to our religious activity. I've heard of other people saying they're entrusting their spirit not to their faith, but to their parents' faith. Are you trusting in any one of those things, or are you trusting in Jesus? You see, for those of us who are entrusting our spirit to Jesus, Luke tells us that death is like what? It's like sleep. I can't tell you how many times I will come into this home after a hard work day and I cannot wait until the moment I get to lay down and go to sleep. Why is that? Because what comes with sleep? Peace and rest. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, Luke tells us that death is like a sleep. It's like peace and rest for the moment we wake up. Guess who we are with? 
We are with Jesus, our advocate and our peace. And what do you think continues to happen to this church after this persecution comes into their lives? They have Jesus as their advocate. They have Jesus as their peace. And instead of running and hiding, we see that they what? They run and they continue to share. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what we read. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On the day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. If you got a Bible, circle that. Where were they scattered? Throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. You see, after Stephen's death, things got worse. While people are mourning Stephen's death, you know, basically officiating his funeral, what does it say in the text? Saul is going and ravaging the church. And think about that word ravaging. Many of us have seen National Geographic, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that has sat there in almost disgust, but also amazement, watching a group of hyenas devour a, you know, like a, a carcass of an animal, a zebra or a deer. Maybe for you, it's not National Geographic, but it's Shark Week. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who has seen that video of sharks eating on that dead whale, just ripping the flesh off of that whale's body. That's the image that you and I are to get, that Saul is literally going into house after house, arresting men and women who are followers of Jesus and throwing them into into jail because he wants to obliterate the church from the face of the earth. And what we see is that suffering, friends, is inevitable, but God's mission is unstoppable. Why? Who was scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria? Was it the apostles? Was it the paid professionals? No. Who was scattered? Everybody but those people. The people who were scattered were average, everyday, ordinary followers of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. And the first time you and I read of the gospel heading out of Jerusalem, it wasn't by the paid professionals. It was by ordinary Christians. And guys, that should not surprise us. If you remember from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And mission, that promise, is not just reserved for the apostles. Here is Saul literally trying to tear the church apart limb by limb. And as he does this, we read that average, everyday, ordinary believers in Jesus scatter to the very places Jesus told them to go. They go to Judea and they go to Samaria, spreading the gospel. What this shows us, mission, is that you and I can either live in obedience to Acts 1.8 or we can be forced to live Acts 8.1. Think about what's happening here. In the very first chapter, Jesus told them to what? To go, Jerusalem, yes, Judea and Samaria and the other parts of the earth. But for eight chapters, where are they still stuck? In Jerusalem. What this shows us is that the gospel does not spread in spite of suffering, but rather the gospel spreads because of it. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. All persecution is demonic and satanic. Yet what we have to see is that no matter how much persecution Satan throws at a church, It does not squash the movement of God, but rather it's like gas on a fire or more like a boomerang coming back to impact him. 
You see, Satan is trying to suppress the gospel from going forth. Yet instead of suppressing the gospel, the gospel scatters. It is moved farther and farther out as ordinary, average, everyday believers full of the Holy Spirit continue to share and show Jesus to the people around them. I heard a pastor once say that Christians are like a pile of fertilizer. Put it all in a pile and it'll burn the ground out from underneath them. Yet if you spread that over an area, it could do some good. That same pastor said Christians are like manure. All in one pile, they really stink. (laughs) Spread them out over a field and they help things grow. You get the idea. Back in the 1700s, there was two men by the name of David Nitchum and John Leonard Dobear who were sitting in a church service like you are right now when they heard their pastor stand up and talk about a group of slaves, 3,000 slaves, who had an atheist slave owner who were living and dying without ever hearing the name of Jesus. As these two young men sat there and listened to their pastor talk about 3,000 people who are going to live and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus, as they sat there listening to that, they decided to do something radical. They weren't going to go on a short-term mission trip. These two men decided to sell themselves into slavery so that they could wake up every morning and go to bed every night around these people in order to share and show Jesus to them. Now, their family and friends, they weren't really supportive of this. Yet, as they boarded that ship and headed out to to that place, and as that ship pulled away from the shore, Looking back at their family and their friends, they, all, they both linked arms and they put up their fists and they said, May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Who stayed back? Family and friends, but also their pastor. Who went to that island, not knowing if they are ever going to come back, screaming out at the top of their lungs, May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of their suffering. Who are those guys? Average, everyday, ordinary believers in Jesus, full of the Spirit, who are compelled to go to that place to share and show Jesus to the people that were living there. Last I checked, there are 16,789 people groups in the world. Of those people groups, 6,950 of them have little to no access to Jesus. Mission, that represents 2.8 billion people. Does that break your heart? You see, it's not the paid professionals who can take the gospel to all those people. There's not enough of them. But rather, Christians are the ones. If you bear the name of Jesus, you are called to share and show Jesus in the spaces and places in which you live, but also in the spaces and places of this world in which I believe Jesus wants to send us. And mission, what Stephen, John, and David did should not be radical. It has always been God's plan for average, everyday, ordinary believers in Jesus to share Him with others through their words and their actions. You see, we not only read about Stephen who cared for widows, who preached the longest sermon in Acts, but we also are going to read about another guy by the name of Philip who, like Stephen, cared for widows, but we're going to see that he preaches as well as he shows Jesus to other people. Look at verse five. It says, or verse uh, four, it says this. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. 
The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. Four unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So the entire church is scattered, and what Luke does is he zooms in on one of these men by the name of Philip. Now, Philip was one of the seven men who were chosen to take care of the, the Hellenistic widows that were being overlooked. And where does Philip go? He goes to Samaria. Now, that may not be a big deal to you. However, to those who are reading this letter, this would have been a huge deal. Philip is a Jew. And we know from John chapter 4, verse 9, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. For they had huge racial and religious tensions that existed between them. And this tension had existed for thousands of years. You see, the Jews were really into purity. And the Samaritans were considered half Gentile and half Jew. Think of maybe like somebody that's a muggle or a mudblood in Harry Potter and you kind of get the idea. But not only was there a racial tension, there was a religious one. For the Samaritans were considered heretics. For they had their own Old Testament and they had their own temple that wasn't the Jewish temple that they worshipped in. Yet you and I, we are not just to feel bad for the Samaritans, for they were known to give it right back to the Jewish people. In those times, they didn't have cell phones or even phones at all to call people to tell them if there was a meeting. And so oftentimes, if there was to be a gathering within the temple of Jewish people, on top of the mountains, they would light a fire. And as that fire would be lit on one mountain, you'd see it go to another one and to another one, and it would call the people in the north to come to Jerusalem. Yet there is documentation of Samaritans going up and capturing those people and then lighting that on fire, and it goes, and all these people come into Jerusalem, and it's not until they get to the temple that they realize they've all been prank called. Before the eve of the, on the eve of the Passover, Samaritans were known to throw pigs over the temple wall and have them splattered, defiling the temple, and they would oftentimes beat up Jewish people on their way to the temple with gifts. And because of all of this, Jewish people wouldn't even, you know, visit a place in Samaria, let alone touch something that a Samaritan touched. You see, if a Samaritan touched something, they wouldn't touch it, they wouldn't sit on it. And devout Jewish people, when they were heading from Galilee back to Judea, the quickest route was through Samaria. But what would they do? They would travel around it. They didn't even want to go through it because they hated these people so much. Many of you know that I'm a diehard Kentucky fan. I talked about that briefly last week. Yet there is a team I do not like that I despise. I just cannot stand them by the name of Duke. I've driven through this country, across this country, with three kids several times. And I will tell you, driving across the country with three kids, if I had to go through Durham, where Duke resides, if I had to go through it, you better believe I'm going to go through it. Why? i got three kids in the car. Yet devout Jewish people with three kids would instead of going through Samaria, would travel around, adding an additional day onto their journey. And Philip, with all this history, decides that the first place he is going to go is to where? The hated Samaritans. What this shows us, Mission, is that the gospel we believe in creates a unity and a love amongst people from different races and cultures, and it covers hundreds of years of hurt. We all long for this unity. We all want to see this takes place. I read a sociologist this week who said this, we know how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws to guarantee fairness. What we haven't been able to do is to make races and cultures love and embrace each other. And what politics and man-made systems cannot do, friends, you need to hear me, the gospel of Jesus Christ can. 
Why is that? We follow King Jesus in all areas of life. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That does not mean that Paul ceased to be who he is in his appearance and his personality. Rather, what he is saying is that his aim in life was Jesus and Jesus's agenda. And as followers of Jesus Christ, you need to understand that if you are following Jesus, he is your king. And his agenda surpasses and outweighs any agenda that is on your life. Jesus' kingdom is not Republican. Jesus' kingdom is not Democratic or Libertarian. Jesus' kingdom is not, also, it's not white, it's not black, it's not Asian, it's not Indian, it's not Middle Eastern. Jesus' kingdom is all about him. Tony Evans says it best like this. He says, God has not come to take sides. God has come to take over. And mission, what you have to understand is that within Jesus' church, there are different ethnicities and cultures, but that is not what is most important. You see, Jesus outweighs all the things that divide us. There are only Christians. Each and every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ was a sinner who now is saved by who? One Lord, his name is Jesus. And what Jesus has done outweighs anything that divides us. And if mission, if Jesus can do that then, then I believe Jesus can do that in our city today. You and I do not get to pick and choose who Jesus saves any more than I got to choose who my biological brothers were. You see, the Bible is clear that Jesus has come to save a people from every tribe, nation, people, and language. Just look at the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9. And what Philip knows is that the gospel he preaches, if it's not for everyone, then it's for no one. That is why he goes into Samaria, the very hated people. He goes into Samaria and he preaches Jesus with his words and he demonstrates Jesus with his actions. What we see is as he goes into Samaria, his ministry is a word ministry, but it's also a deed ministry. And what he does is he performs miraculous signs. And it is here that many people tend to get tripped up. And we've talked about this at length in previous messages. Yet what Tim Keller says about these verses is helpful. Listen to what he says. These statements are so simple that we may overlook the wisdom herein. The only way we will see a movement of God that lifts a, our whole city is if there is a combination of word and deed. We must, must not be too distracted by the fact that Philip's deed ministry was miraculous. We have several times discussed the fact that we should neither insist that all miracles have ceased or insist that the church exhibit the same kinds and numbers of miracles at every time and place. The fact was Philip saw physical misery around him and worked on it, healed the sick. Also, he saw spiritual bondage and, and healed it, cast out demons. Or cast out, yeah, cast out demons. They, the crowds, flocked to and listened to the preaching. In the same way, the people of a city need to see, A, Christians having compassion on the physically suffering, the poor, the dying, the orphans, etc. And they need to see the physically uh, suffer, or they need to see, B, the changed lives of people who through Christ have been delivered from psychological and spiritual bondage. Then they will listen to the gospel in mass. You see, Philip preached the gospel through words, but then he lived that gospel through actions. He preached his gospel and then he lived the gospel that he preached. And why is that? Because Jesus was empowering him 
to share the gospel through word and deed. And I believe Jesus is doing that with everyone who is watching and listening this morning. I've heard excuses over the years where people come up to me and say, Pastor, I don't know what to say. I'm not Bible smart. What if I mess up? What if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer? What is the problem with all those questions? The focus is on their power and their might and not Jesus. Many years ago, my wife came up to me and, and she is honestly better with her words than she gives herself credit. Yet she was convicted by this and came up and asked, how can I live on mission? And so if you know anything about my wife, she is really, really good at making food, cooking food. And I looked right back at her and I said, if you cook food, people will come. Heck, I come back each and every night. So, so why don't we do this? Why don't we throw a neighborhood breakfast and call all of our neighbors in? You make the food, I'll talk. We did that, put out the invitation. We ended up having 23 people, gecko and an iguana in our front yard. And I shared Jesus with many people, had many conversations about the church and about Jesus, but guess who else did? My wife did. You see, what was the result of Philip's ministry in Samaria? It was joy. And you know what the result was of that breakfast? A lot of joy because a lot of those people had commented how they used to do things like that, but they haven't done it in such a long time. And that it was great to be able to actually meet with other people and to get to know their neighbors. You see, I don't know about you, but I think we can use some more joy in our city. And how does that happen? It's by you, everyday, average, ordinary Christian, living in the power of the Spirit to both share and show, declare and demonstrate Jesus to those around you through words and deeds. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, who is being called? Who is being called to host that breakfast? Who's being called to, to reach out to the city to see how we can serve? Who is being called to lead that evangelism class to equip more people to share and show Jesus throughout the ordinary, day, ordinary average, everyday moments of life? Who is called to do that? It's not just the paid professionals, the apostles, or the pastors, but it's Jesus equipping everyday ordinary believers to live out his mission by the power of the Holy Spirit. In 1949, 637 Christian missionaries were kicked out of China. All the Christian missionaries in China were kicked out. The Christian world looked on China and thought China was lost. Yet guess what happened? 637 missionaries were kicked out. Yet, while they were out of the country, Christianity grew 40%. Why is that? Because Jesus isn't just empowering the missionaries. Jesus is empowering those who trust in Him in all spaces and places to live out His mission through word and deed by the Spirit. Mission Church, may we be a church who lives out in obedience what Jesus has called us to do in Acts 1.8, to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the other most parts of the earth. Why? Because He said, when my Holy Spirit comes upon you, you don't get a choice to be my witnesses. It's not that you might be my witnesses, but rather you will be my witnesses, so that the ends of the earth may know who He is. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us through your Son. And I just pray for us as a church that we will be a people who will live with confidence because we know we have an advocate 
who is for us, and his name is Jesus. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we pray for the Holy Spirit power to be your witnesses so that the nations and the peoples of this world will come to know Christ. God, I pray what happened in Samaria will happen here in Las Vegas and that it will continue to spread throughout this nation and throughout the world. We ask you to do all of this, God, for your glory, our joy, for the defeat of the evil one in our world, but also for the joy of the people in our world so that that same joy that existed in Samaria will exist in their lives. God, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.